Thanks, Bjorn. Cool. Well, welcome uh, to Melbourne. If you're visiting, um, I know we have some people from around Australia and a couple of visitors from Portland. Um, but wherever you've come from, uh, yeah, welcome uh, to Rebuilders. Um, and really what I wanted to just do today is, I guess, to kick off things, we're going to hear from John Mark uh, soon, is just really to set out the stall of a, why we're doing this and where we feel we're at at the moment. One of the reasons that we felt it was really important to do something is there was this time where if in the Australian church scene you talked about doing another event, people said, don't we have enough conferences on? The really interesting thing is that if you actually look at it, there's actually not that many conferences on. We have a couple of very big conferences. Uh, we have specialized conferences, but actually seminars or events which are looking at just basically how do you do ministry today in Australia, there's an absence. We also find ourselves at a really interesting time where there is an absence of leaders coming through to take on the next mantle of leadership in churches. We're at the stage where we have a number of baby boomers, uh, sort of pastors who are in their sort of uh, end of their ministry contribution, who are now moving into retirement. And when I think of my generation, um, uh, there's actually very few people coming forward to take over those positions. So we have this challenge now where churches are struggling to ask, what's the next question? And so really what I want to do today is I just want to reframe some of the questions around what I think ministry means at this moment, and I want to challenge some of the assumptions that I think we've actually held for the last 30 years. So, I'm going to sort of just go workshoppy style. I'm hoping everyone can see my flip chart uh, here. Yes. Is that better? That's good. And, uh, but before we do that, I just want to pray. Thank you, Father, that uh, you're a God of new things. I want to thank you, Father, that you are a God who is constantly at work, bringing a people closer to you, bringing a people deeper into your love, that you want to fill this world with your love. We thank you that you sent Christ to save us. And Father, we just want to particularly pray for our nation, Australia, this country which is just so blessed in abundance but at the same time can be spiritually parched. So we come before you as willing participants in the grand story that you're weaving in our nation today. Yesterday we had the pleasure of taking John, Mark and Alex around the city of Melbourne. And when you hear the stories that we tell about faith in Australia, we tell stories where you do not hear a lot of the Christian history of Australia. If you go to Europe, you'll be confronted with church spires at the center of town squares. Everywhere seems to be covered in the various different elements of Christian history. The United States is very similar. The United States is a, is a country which is aware of its Christian roots. Donald Trump's Make America Great Again appeals to a lot of people because it's a return to a time when Christianity seemed vital in American history. And that's all wrapped up with all kinds of cultural Christianity. But what's really interesting about Australia is Australia is a country where we're actually sometimes more aware of European church history and American church history than we are of our own church history. 
Walking around town yesterday, it's fascinating. You actually see these fingerprints of faith in Australia, which we're almost unaware of. At the front of uh, the Catholic church that we visited uh, yesterday in Melbourne downtown, there's a statue of a figure of a guy called Bishop Mannix, who's almost unknown today. But essentially, Bishop Mannix was responsible for the Labor Party splitting between a conservative Catholic faction and the Labor Party that we know today. This was at a point where religion was so ingrained in Australian society that it would actually shape our entire political debate. Whether you're walking past the Anglican Cathedral in downtown Melbourne, whether you're walking past Baptist churches or whatever, this springs up from a time when actually in Australia, Christianity had a much greater impact than it has today. Now, part of the reason that we don't see that is we have a faulty view of secularism, which is a kind of myth of secularism, which is told constantly to us, both by people outside the church and within the church, that essentially goes, this is my super rudimentary explanation of this, that somehow in the past, let's say the medieval days, let's say 1300, the church was super strong, and then as science and secularism has taken over, as materialism has kicked off, the church has slowly dropped off, and we're somehow doing ministry at this time. And the force is actually moving this way, and we're always moving against it. So Christianity has to change to deal with this incredible onslaught that's almost inescapable. But actually, if you look at how faith has worked, not just in Australia, but throughout the world, is faith looks more like this. That it's actually a boom and bust game. That there are times when the church and faith is growing and then times when it drops off. This happened in the medieval period. There was moments when the church had reached this point where it lost the people. And then you have these different renewal movements going on. Just before the movement of Methodism with John Wesley and all of the stuff that came about, many of the roots of your churches, which, which you may be from, actually came out of that movement. There was a service at St. Paul's Cathedral in London at Easter where there were six people who turned up. This is the 18th century, supposedly a time when, you know, faith was huge. And Australia's birth in the 18th century was the birth of a country which was described in the 18th century as a post-Christian country. Started by convicts, indigenous people were here, the original chaplain to the colony in New South Wales, a guy called Richard Johnson, wanted funds from the government to build a church. He was not given those funds. He had to raise them himself. The government instead put money into a science and research center before a church, which tells you something about the times that he was doing that in the 18th century, the beginning of the Enlightenment. And then this church, which he finally raised money for, and had a 500-seat capacity, I think it was their first Christmas service, 30 people turned up. It was later then burnt down, uh, and the first church in Australia is burnt down. Many people blamed the Irish. Um, 
which is who you blamed back then. Um, and so the story of the sort of church beginning in Australia is this incredible tough ground. British soldiers, military guys, convicts, women who were sex workers, indigenous population, people escaping from all over the different world, parts of the world to come to Australia. And so Australia was described as post-Christian at beginning. In the state of Victoria, gold rush is what brought people here. The city of Melbourne was a city which boomed. It was like a Silicon Valley of the 19th century. But at that point, the church was so concerned that Christianity had such little impact that they were talking about how do you do ministry with people who are just almost totally irreligious. Not only irreligious, but addicted to money, addicted to sex, addicted to substance. And this is actually the 19th century. So the midpoint of the 1850s, you see something happen in Melbourne where people begin to pray for God to do something. These prayers lasted for almost half a century. It began really about the 1860s. And then this praying and praying and praying for God to do something grew over those decades. So by 1901 at Federation, and there's a famous painting of the first holding of the Australian Parliamentary Session at the Royal Exhibition Buildings. And so you might have seen that if you ever went there on a school excursion or seen it in a, in a, in a book where you have this uh, opening of Parliament and all the different dignitaries are there and it's painted in this sort of neoclassical style. What so few Australians know is that that week, at the end of that week, there was a prayer meeting held at the Royal Exhibition Buildings that was pretty much standing room only. So many people wanted to come and pray, they had to divide it into a men's night and a women's night, not because they were you know, segregating the genders, but that's the way they had to organize it because so many people were praying. More people turned up to that first prayer meeting than actually turned up to the beginning of Australian Parliament. That's a story which is untold in human history. Oh, sorry, in Australian history. Australian history has been written by people with a tremendous prejudice. Manning Clark, who was going between his leftist thought but then wrestling with Christ, tells a story that at World War I, when the Australian forces liberated the city of Jerusalem, he tells this story of how the Australian troops, irreligious, walked up, and one, as he headed up the way into Jerusalem, said, I'm really hungry, help me find Jesus' body so I can chew on his leg bone. Manning Clark uses this as a classic example of Australian irreligiousness and, you know, sort of larrikin spirit. But then he adds this second line, and it said, while hundreds of other diggers stood at the churches and wept while Mass was read. And so in Australian history, we have this irreligious story thrown at us all the time. It's different to Europe. It's different to America in that the dominant story is that we are irreligious. And then just this throwaway line from Manning Clark, these diggers weeping at Mass. So Australia actually is a religious country. That movement that begins in 1901 in Melbourne then becomes this incredible revival where you had in the inner city of Melbourne really mega churches, Salvation Army churches, Methodist churches of two, 3,000 people. 
There is a church not far from here in Boxville South that was started by Methodist circuit riders on horseback. This then spread to Bendigo, Ballarat, all around Australia, into the South Pacific, Papua New Guinea, into Asia, into India. And Melbourne and Australia became this place which then created this quite incredible move of God. So many of the different organizations that you may be part of from, or had experience in your past, things like, just, in, just using a Melbourne example, we could tell this of all of Australia, just in Melbourne, the Belgrave Heights Convention, the Bible College of Victoria, um, Keswick Old Bookstore that used to be in the city, all these things were Youth for Christ, which contributed to probably your ministry and you being here, came out of this move in 1901, where a super secular, progressive city, as it saw itself at that time, actually rediscovered Christ in a fundamentally powerful new way. But where we are is that we are at a time when we've come to the end of one of these cycles. And what I wanted to just talk about was that a model of understanding where we are at this time is absolutely vital because most of the models that we're taught in how to deal with what God is doing or how to read our culture are faulty because they're actually now out of date. And by that, I'm not talking about how to run church in the 1950s. I'm talking about some of the most cutting-edge books that you will buy at the local Christian bookstore, some of the most cutting-edge preachers and pastors that you will read are out of date, A, because they're coming from an American context, which presumes a massive evangelical hump in a country that then is defining itself against that, which we don't have in this country, in the same way that happens in the United States, or it's a misreading of history. So I just want to offer a model of really how God renews and works through periods in time. And this is sort of based that you've probably heard this before. It can be in different things of organizational theory. You might have heard organizational theory. You might have heard elements of this before. It really goes back to a medieval Arabic thinker called Ibn Khaldun, but I've tweaked it a little bit. But essentially, whether uh, it's a culture or a movement is that how things tend to work is that things are bad. Things are hopeless. People are scratching out an existence somewhere. And then you have this generation who grows up and asks the question, why are things so bad? And what can we do about it? And so you have this generation, which I call a preparer, generation. Now, this, I'm not saying equating this is like with a generation Y or a generation in that sense, but people alive at a particular time in history, more of a biblical concept of a generation. So this generation says, why is stuff so bad? How can we change things being so bad? How do we actually set up people to then succeed in a tough, seemingly hopeless situation? This is the generation who in the 1860s in Melbourne started to pray. Another example would be the generation in Korea, who in the 1950s and 60s, through the Korean War, started to pray that God would do something in their country. This is John Wesley going out on horseback, 
This is Catherine and William Booth looking at the absolute destruction of the Industrial Revolution on the social fabric of a city and saying, hang on, can we do something different? And so a preparer generation begins, which is then followed by a pioneer generation who then work off the impetus and in Christian, look at, I'm going to look at this from a completely Christian viewpoint now, not just a social one, then allow to start in those new springs of growth that they start to tend those springs of growth that have just grown out of the hard soil of the desert. The pioneer generations are the ones which then start to flourish, setting up new things. There's an entrepreneurial spirit. Things are exciting. These people are not super well resourced. These people live by the skin of their teeth following the spirit. These people are risk takers. These people are filled with courage. They know that they're up against it. They're not trying to be popular. They're trying to reshape a different world. They then try and systematize and pass on to the next generation what they have learnt, the essence of what God is doing amongst them. And then the next generation, I'm going to call the traditionalists. Now, you're probably thinking like, oh, you know, stodgy, cobweb-laced people who follow generation, you know, tradition for multiple generations. What I mean by this is something slightly different. What I mean is that these people try and take the essence of what these people have communicated and systematized. And they're actually trying to stick to the tradition, but they're more resourced than the pioneers. They're living off that kinetic energy, which is now moving people forward, and they're living off that. So... They're wanting to follow in the tradition, but they don't have the rawness of experience of what it is to like break new ground. Things are actually good. Churches are full. Movements are growing. And then you get to the next stage, and this is really where sort of problems begin to, begin to play out. You then have a manager generation. They're continuing with the traditions, but they're not doing it from a passion because they actually knew people who were there when God did something. What they're then doing is just continuing to do it because this is what's always been done. They accept that there is resources. They accept that this is the way we've always done things. But there's a distance between these people and the pioneer generation and the preparer generation. And so decay begins to set in the sclerosis of the arteries. People are doing stuff, but they don't know why they're doing it. They're just doing it through blind obedience. This is no longer about a relationship with God and coming out of a genuine experience of the Spirit. We're going through the motions. And so then what happens is decay begins to turn into questioning. And the last cycle is the deconstruction generation. The deconstruction generation is a generation who then questions all of this. They see what they feel is the hypocrisy of the manager generation and they deconstruct what went before them. And classically, they don't work with bricks. They're not rebuilders like the pioneer generation or the preparer generation. They work with dynamite and they blow everything up. And then we find ourselves back in a situation where stuff is bad and hopeless. If you want to look for a biblical analogy to this, this is the book of Judges. 
In the book of Judges, there is what they call the Judges cycle, where the people are rescued and saved by God. They then have this encounter with the living God who creates this salvation moment for them. They want to pass that stuff on to their children, write it on their foreheads. Remember Passover. But then they begin to forget. And in that great forgetting, they then become entrapped by idols. The idols then take over. God sends a warning. They don't listen to the warning. And then what happens is they begin to move into that stage of deconstruction. And then they get to this point where it's so bad and hopeless and there's a potential to start again. So where we are in this scheme is that I think in Australia you had either, you can look at it in 1901, you can look at it in Billy Crane coming out in 1956, these incredible moves where we're now at the end of this experience. I would say from the 1980s, the second half of the 1980s, you begin to see the destruction, uh, deconstruction moment happen in the church. In the 90s, it kicks off. My experience of coming into ministry was 100% in this stage. And I emerged into it, Gen X, Kurt Cobain, flannel shirts, we're just blowing up everything. Like, why do we do that? Why do we need to do worship? What is the Bible anyway? All these questions... All of a sudden, you don't want to have actual truth and vibrant belief. We're going to have conversations. And this mode takes over, which really interesting, in the 1990s and then beginning of the 2000s, is actually backed up by all the power, particularly of the American publishing industry. Where this, people realize that because in America you have this large evangelical hump in the middle of the country and kids are leaving that experience to go and study in a big city and deconstructing their faith, people begin to work out, you can make a lot of money selling books to those people. So, it's not like a classic deconstruction of like punks living in some house that's falling apart, throwing Molotov cocktails at the police. This is actually backed up by all of the elements of particularly the powerful publishing Christian entertainment industry. And so, we now look at this, but what's actually happening is, there's a point where the deconstructive period begins to end. And the deconstructed period leaves us in a place where it's a kind of wasteland. Where the experimental communities that you begin with a deconstructive viewpoint can never grow in the ways that ones that start in a pioneer phase grow. So they're one generational. They begin with high ideals but find themselves deconstructed. There's an element of deconstruction that needs to happen in every stage at times where things need to be questioned and are we just managing? But when the deconstruction is the dominant mode, you're then in trouble. So that's where we are today. We're stuck after 30 years of deconstruction. Just for two minutes, I've just thrown a lot of concepts at you. Just turn to the person next to you and say, where have you seen the evidences of the fact that we're in the deconstructive stage and even coming to the end of the deconstructive stage into moving to something new? Just discuss that with the person next. So... The deconstruction, which again, I said you need to actually do some deconstruction sometime to question as to whether you're still following that move of God that he did. 
But once you start deconstruction as the dominant mode, you create this kinetic energy that just keeps on moving and deconstructing and you can't do anything about it. And it begins to destroy everything. Now, what's really interesting is that as the church has been going through this, particularly in Australia, is that something's also been happening at culture at the same time. And what's happening is that just as this model, if you like, works in the church, it also works in Western culture. That you have a thing happening, really, in the last hundred years, where you have horrible things happen, like World War I, World War II. You then have this world order, which is built up after World War II, which is how do we create a world of peace? How do we create a world which is never going to go to war again? And one of the ways that it did that was to push all of that stuff of believing stuff too hard is push it away. Don't be too, like, uh, you know, excited about politics because if we are, we're going to go to war again. And so what happens is you can go through this stage where that happens. There's people after the war. We then have this world where we start to, like, move into migration and the world starts to move into being a smaller place and people are like, let's just have this sort of ethic of tolerance where, hey, you're a Buddhist, cool, I'm a Christian. You know, what it's called a liberal society where you have differing points of view. But then it goes into this stage where it starts to just become a belief, which is disconnected now from the people who originally pushed that. John Paul II said that one of the great tasks of people who lived through the 20th century, and he lived under Nazism and communism before he became Pope, was to, we can never, ever forget just how bad the 20th century was. How many people were killed? The people who were killed by the Nazis, you're looking at, I think, 20 million people. The communists killed 40 million people. And that's just not Russia, that's like China, Cambodia, that story's told again and again. And we got to this point at the end of the 20th century where we can't go back. And then when the Berlin Wall fell, it looked like, hey, we're just going to move into this new era. I think the height of it is Tony Blair came to power and had this thing where we're not going to be left or right, we're just going to be this new thing, they called it New Labour. He invited Oasis over to 10 Downing Street and they had like beers, like it was this moment like, hey, let's just have beers and just move forward and let's not get too excited about stuff. But then this destructive moment where you had generations who had never known this starting to move into power. And so what happens is we've now moved into this deconstruction. And what's so interesting is, you know, you look at politics, whether it's in the United States, Europe, Australia, all over the world, where things seem to be becoming more polarized. And all of a sudden that center bit where Bill Clinton and Tony Blair and Bob Hawke brought it to the middle is that it seems like now we've gone back. Like we've got Trump and we've got Bernie Sanders, we've got in Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, you know, the Labour and, and you've got Australian Conservatives with, with, with Cory Bernardi and everything seems to be going out to these, these extremes again. But what's interesting is that's happening in a deconstructive state. So what no one notices is that the left and right are now working together to do two things. And I could do an hour on this, but I'll do this as quickly as possible. You can ask me questions about it if it doesn't make sense. But the two impetuses are, number one, is a right-wing thought which actually looks nothing like genuine conservatism anymore. Donald Trump just destroyed the, the Republican Party. And you then have what it is, is big business coming in and destroying everything, so we now have these incredible control mechanisms in our pockets made by funky, cool Silicon Valley companies that now are just have so much incredible power. And what these do is, these destroy 
all kinds of human interrelationships. This is what you call digital capitalism, where you have a kind of capitalism that gets more into your pocket, which is reshaping how we think about sex, relationships, shopping, belonging, meaning. It just evaporates all that stuff, turning up to church. Why should I go to your church? I can just download Elevation Church, Tim Keller, I can do any of this. I can just, you know, like, just beam in. So you've got this digital capitalism which is destroying the stuff which makes the fabric of human interaction and at the same time you've got this new increasingly, comes out of critical theory, but left-wing progressivism which actually does the same thing. Which wants to deconstruct gender, deconstruct marriage, deconstruct any previous thought, everything is suspect and no one realizes that they're doing the same things, holding hands. And so universities today, these bizarre things where there's this great debate between the conservative British philosopher Roger Scruton and the left-wing British philosopher um, Terry Eagleton, and they had this debate, like, like Eagleton saying, universities today, they're just these capitalist things that want money and they want to sell education. And, and Scruton's going, are you kidding me? They're like so left-wing, like I'm persecuted as a conservative universities. And I watched it, I thought they're both right. So we're now pumping people into the world who have this very left-wing deconstruct everything except economically. And then we have this right-wing view which is like conservative but actually is the gospel of Hugh Hefner. And Donald Trump is the embodiment of that. And this is working against everything. So what's happening is this deconstructive mode then is returning to this time where all of a sudden that mode in which we have tried as the church to communicate to people like we're the uptight ones and we're just got to chill out and be relevant and be more open, have more conversation is happening at a moment when now culture is reconstituting. Politics is the new religion. Belief is back. This isn't post-modernity anymore. This is people where the weirdest thing that has happened now is that if you grew up in a conservative Christian environment where, hey, you can't say that, hey, they're the out people, hey, really watch your thoughts, and then all of a sudden we had deconstructed that and we're trying to be like chilled out and cool, just then when the culture becomes exactly like that. So the bizarre thing is now, the Christians are like trying to be like laid back. I saw this interview on TV with two of the young guys from Hillsong in the band, and they were being interviewed, and they're like, you know, got cool jackets, and like, they're in New York in this coffee shop, like, hey man, we're just like laid back, and we're like totally cool, like it's rock and roll, and they've got super cool haircuts and tats, and they're all cool. And then the next story was a woman who is trying to get any religion out of She's an atheist trying to get any religion out of schools in South Australia. And she's all uptight and angry and judgmental. And I'm like, hang on, you're church lady now. How did this happen? <laughs> this is like a giant swap. Like, what the heck is going on? So, the two things that we've done, which is to try and deal with this sort of laid-back deconstruction thing. Like, Playboy's actually almost gone out of business. Like... If you go to, I think it's Cambridge now, if you want to go to Cambridge in the UK, you've got to do a four-day course on what is consent. 
how to not objectify a woman, how to think about sex in the right way. And one guy who went through it said, I grew up in the church, and that's just a thousand times more, more controlled than anything I've ever learned in the church about sex. Like, this is like, this is insanely repressive. So you've got this stage where we've moved to this stage of our, our tactics for dealing with this is to be super cool and relevant and just be like, hey, I don't even like Christians that much. I just like to hang out at a cool pub and read my Bible there. Or, <laughs> or you've got the whole thing of, let's just deconstruct it all because people today, they're not into religion. No, religion and belief is back and culture is actually reconstituting and rebuilding. So the models and strategies that we've used does not cut it anymore. To go, hey, people don't want actual churches that are institutional. No, they're actually looking for places which give them meaning. They've grown up with the idea of family is not even settled. Gender's not even settled. They've got no idea of a contract for a job. The idea of a community which offers you this embedded and lived place to, to dwell is totally radical now. People are looking for it. I was talking to people from, from the cathedral in the city. All of a sudden, people now are walking into St. Paul's Cathedral in Melbourne saying, I want to become a Christian. People are searching for something. We live in a culture where you have a huge multicultural Australia where you've got everything going on. In these eastern suburbs of Melbourne, there are so many Iranians coming to faith that Alpha are now saying that Farsi is almost trending with the levels of English and they're having printed out. You have got this, these different movements beginning amongst groups, which we don't see. And one mistake that we've made is that if one thing that the election of Donald Trump and Brexit told us is that you can fall into a trap where you think what the elites, particularly urban, urban elites, which you can find in Poland, which you can find in the, the inner north of Melbourne, which you can find in downtown Sydney, tend to just surround themselves with each other, tend to just follow each other on social media, tend to massively um, uh, just talk about diversity and inclusion, yet are completely monocultural. It's fascinating. The, the whitest parts of Melbourne are the inner city of Melbourne, Sydney, of Australia. Portland is, I think, is it the whitest city in America? Widest big city in America. Every store you walk into Portland, and I'll, I'm stealing your thunder a little bit here, John Mark, that you, there's these signs saying, we accept anyone in this place. We accept Muslims, black people, white people, men, women, all genders, straight, bi, gay, blah, blah, blah. And you walk in there and everyone's white. <laughs> and like, everyone's votes left. And so this interesting thing is, we thought that the progressive Western person is what all unchurched people are like. They're not. Australia, you're going to find people who are not just on the left of you, but on the right of you on issues. I got called last week by a Chinese Buddhist who wanted to talk to me about the marriage plebiscite and was telling me stuff that's going on in Australia's ethnic communities who are totally fired up about this issue, more than I'm seeing churches, and totally conservative on it. And their question to me is, what is the church doing to stand up for this issue? And I'm like, wow, this is totally different than the conversation I expected to have around this with people outside of the church, which was like, oh, you know. And, she, you know, there, there are people in Australia who will look at, at churches. There's a lot of people around here who look at churches and we're actually too progressive for them. So you're actually, you know, it's not whether they're too progressive or too conservative. It's where you're standing. So 
what the whole reason that we wanted to start this rebuilders concept is that we're actually moving into a stage of rebuilding. We're actually moving into a stage where the people coming into our church, their lives are totally set against them. The landscape that's been set up by the deconstruction of all social norms, digital capitalism, which benefits from that, is now a people where there's zero order, there's zero building. They have no idea of community, let alone even friendships. You have young people growing up who can barely talk to each other. If you've been to a 16-year-old party lately, you'll go to them and no one's talking. Everyone's texting. Young people are having less sex than they did since 1982. Not because there's a moral revolution, is that you actually have to be in a room with someone to have sex with them. <laughs> murder, murder is down amongst teenagers because you have to be in a room with someone to murder them. Um, and, and so we're now in this stage where the, 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 the kind of let's deconstruct everything and, and be cool and just be chill about everything thing is actually the culture is moving away from that reality. The whole thing of let's be super relevant you can be as relevant as you want, but if you don't tick the exact beliefs of the new fundamentalist opinions, who has total religiosity around it, you're going to be on the outer. So, we believe that we're at this stage where we're actually, where are we? We're here. This is a new preparer generation. We cannot exist on the fumes of trust funds from the past. We cannot exist on the fumes of what people gave in their church in 1940 that's sitting in a bank somewhere. We can't continue to go on buildings that were built in the past or, or programs. There is a time now to actually be, we're back in 1860, praying that God does something and crying out and the deconstructive mode is not going to get us there. What's going to get us is actually a desire for God. A desire to go deeper. A desire for His Spirit to move again. A desire where we actually realize that if you are in a country, as we are in Australia, which what is it? I mean, most of our cities are in the top 10 most liberal cities in the world. Credit Suisse says Australians are some of the richest people in the world. If you're living in a country like that, and you're forgetting the poor, and you're forgetting God, and if you've read the Old Testament, it's not a good place to be. And so do we cry out for our country? So today is really about this process of getting some leaders in the room. We didn't want to do a big conference, we just want to get some leaders in the room who are passionate about this, and some of you have been through that deconstructive process, some of you here like, what's the next thing? Like, I've come to the end of all these different things. It's about studying again and starting with discipleship. A committed core, sold out for God, deeply desiring Him. That's what a rebuilder is. Someone who tills the ground, gets out the bricks, gets the mortar going, perhaps build for a generation which is to come of pioneers, which you may not even join, but tilling the ground, starting something new, and this is actually the most exciting place to be because all the culture of Christianity has dropped off. It's gone. This is, who's the core now? Our 5 p.m. service is mostly young adults, mostly 
sort of, you know, probably 25 is the age. And we now say, if you're 25 and you're turning up to a church at 5 p.m., you're fed income now. You're not a cultural Christian. So we have the responsibility to work with those people and begin something new. 